we're, we're going through the Ten Words of God, right? The Ten Commandments. And the commandment is very simple. <laughs> you shall not commit adultery. And um, we should not define adultery in strictly narrow terms, but what is being prohibited is all sexual immorality. And as we've been saying that for every negative commandment, there's also a positive side, and the positive side is to uphold and honor marriage. Um, and the Christian view of marriage and the Christian view of sex is really high and holy. And, um, and so here I have it you know, spelled out for you. Um, sex is only for marriage, right? which means that you are to be completely faithful to your spouse, uh, which means no sex with anyone else. Um, and that means before marriage, you have to practice total abstinence. Um, if you never marry, that means lifelong abstinence. And that sounds completely unrealistic and oppressive. And for uh, a lot of people, this is what they hate most about Christianity. I would argue that this is the single most... Um, ah, sorry, it's okay. Um, I would argue that this is the, the single biggest stumbling block that our culture has against Christianity today, which is um, 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 a little strange because, well, not strange, but the culture has shifted because it used to be the case that the biggest stumbling block that people had about Christianity was its claims to um, these supernatural miracles. But that doesn't bother people as much now um, as the ethical teachings on sex. That is the single most highest stumbling block. And I want to try to argue and persuade you guys today that um, the Christian view of sex is really beautiful and it's true to our nature. Okay, And so we're going to begin by looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is a seminal passage. And I'm going to do something a little bit unusual. Usually we go through a lot of scripture, but today we're just going to go through a single scripture. I'm going to explain the Christian view of sex from that piece of scripture. And then we're going to read through uh, because I think there's a lot of thoughtful commentary in our popular culture about the implications of sex and see how the Christian view, I think, really resonates with this intuition that even our modern culture has about the meaning and purpose of sex, right? Um, so, to save time, let me just skip down to verse 13. If you look at all the italics, those are basically slogans or quotes that the Corinthian Christians were, were saying to sort of justify their sexual practices. Because in the ancient the ancient world, um, the ancient world had a pretty loose view of sex. Um, they, they had, you know, uh, uh, they had moral views about it, but basically those moral views constrained married women. Because it was very important to ensure that uh, the children belonged to the husband. And so married women were supposed to be, were supposed to be faithful, um, but married men could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Because what does it matter? It doesn't make a difference, right? So uh, the ancient, view, ancient world had a very, very loose view of sex. Um, in fact, um, um, they would combine religion and sex so that a lot of times you would go to temple to worship and there would be temple prostitutes, right? So you could worship God by having sex. And so it's a very uh, different world than what we're used to. And so we sort of think, oh, you know, the modern world has such a very relaxed, has a very, you know, comfortable with erotica nothing compared to the ancient world. We have like uh, ancient remains of like giant phallic statues. Like, so basically you would enter the city and you see this giant penis. And you would see like uh, sculptures of, of breasts everywhere, right? So it was a very pornographic culture, right? Um, and so the Corinthian Christians were very much affected by this. And they would quote in verse 13, this was a common view of sex, verse 13, Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Um, and so that, that statement about food, right, uh, is being applied to sex, which is, they're saying, sex is basically like an appetite, right? If you get hungry, what do you do? You don't suppress your appetite. You eat. If you're hungry, you eat. And so if you feel sexual hunger, you have sex. And to deny that appetite to suppress it, to to um, to sort of contain it is unhealthy, 
it's um, oppressive and it's unreasonable. Does that sound very familiar, right? That's basically the modern view of sex. And so this is Paul's reply. Uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And let me just stop right there. The word sexual immorality, um, it's a big, long translation, but it's actually a very simple Greek word. It's the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our um, English word pornography. And porneia basically just means all sexual, um, all sexual activity that's outside of the narrow confines of marriage, right? So the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? We're going to go back to this. Okay, Very important. For as it is written, and he quotes Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh, right? There's the classic definition of sex and marriage from Genesis 2.24. Uh, uh, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his fa- and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, right? That's the key to understanding the Christian view of sex and marriage. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Right? Don't try to negotiate it. Don't try to compromise or try to rationalize it. Flee, run. Um, every other sin is a sin. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And I think that what that's basically saying is that uh, the ancient Greeks believed that whatever you do to your body, even if it's defiling, even if it's you know you're you're, you're doing um, degrading activities, it's okay because it's just your body, because your spirit, your mind is separated, right? And Paul is saying no, they're integrated, they're connected, right? And this is, by the way, the uh, uh, touches on the Christian view of sex that um, body and soul are deeply connected. We'll get we'll be, we'll get back to that. Verse nineteen. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. All right. So, um, so here's the Christian view of sex. Uh, going back to um, the two will become one flesh. Right. Um, if you have sex with somebody, you have you become one body with them. So what that means is that the Christian view of sex is a... Well, let me read what I wrote. Oh, is, a, is a unifying act, okay, that makes two people one. That's the Christian view of sex. Sex is a physically unifying act, right? So that two people become one in the physical sense, but that it's actually whole life union. It's comprehensive union, right? So that it's two people, two lives becoming intertwined and sharing one life together. And the biblical view of marriage, therefore, is that it's a comprehensive union. Right? It's a coming together uh, in every way, emotionally, financially, um, you know, in terms of like uh, uh, enduring the ups and downs of life, vagaries of life, and bodily. Okay? So, marriage is where two people link arms and they say, let's live together, let's experience life together, let's um, encounter hardships and difficulties together, let's combine our financial resources into one pot together, let's share our emotional life together, and in that context, it is fitting and right and beautiful that the married couple says, and let's share our body together, our bodies together, right? Let's come together in sexual union. And therefore, in the Christian worldview, sex 
is not just a unifying act, but it builds up and um, encourages and and um, and um, um, it's it's like this ministry that you're doing that increases the union. I don't know if that makes sense, right? So how did I put it here? Um, Ah yes, it's affirming and deepening and nurturing and 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 um, deepening the, the 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 union, right? So that each time you have sex, it's not just like you're saying, "I have this sexual appetite, let me uh, satisfy it or feed it." But what you're doing is you're serving the other person, you're thinking about the other person, you're caring for the other person, and you're deepening that that union, right? And that this comprehensive union requires. A promise, a legal promise, actually. And this legal promise is for lifelong fidelity. That you can't do comprehensive union unless it's permanent. Right? So your two lives can't come together unless both of them agree, I'm with you to the end of life. I'm with you so that even if you break down, even if you have an emotional breakdown, a bodily breakdown, if you have, a, if you have a, some sort of financial career breakdown, I'm not going to abandon ship, but I'm going to stick with you to the end. And therefore, it requires a promise, a solemn pledge that you will do this, and it requires legality to it, meaning you have to make a promise that is binding to which you pledge yourself, I will not break this promise. And it has to be a public pledge so that everyone can see. And therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, so if you sort of strip out this bodily union outside of this comprehensive union with a legal promise, then what you're doing is deeply false and inauthentic and actually cowardly. Because what you're trying to, what you're telling somebody is, I want to be naked with you physically, but I don't want to be naked with you emotionally. I don't want to be naked with you financially. I don't want to be naked with you in any other way. Just, just, just physicality, and that's a very selfish thing, right? Because you're basically saying, I, I, I want to only experience oneness for a time, not for you know, not not for our, the rest of our lives, only for this short time. Uh, I want to I want to experience physical oneness, but I don't want to be one with you in every other way of life. And so the Bible would say, Christianity would say, that's very false. That's very artificial. That's very um, uh, deeply jarring. And therefore, because Christianity says this can only be safely practiced inside of marriage, it's actually the highest, most beautiful view of sex there is, because what it's saying is that sex. Is only properly expressed within this the safety within the within this commitment committed life committed togetherness right so that's the Christian basic view of sex is there any questions or any comments and then we're going to work um, out some implications yeah. clarification so the italics you yeah. said those are sayings of the time or those are sayings of the time that the Christians kind of bought into at the time yeah so they're basically like Arguments that they're making against Paul, what Paul is saying. Using the values of the uh, time. Exactly. Okay. So, therefore, sex is for one flesh union. So, um, So, marriage, right? The language that that um, that uh, is used in Genesis, the language that Paul, that Jesus repeats, the G- the language that uh, Paul repeats, is marriage is one flesh union. The two will become one flesh, um, which means that it's not two uh, one uh, 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 two people laying down their independence and then having this combined life together, right? Any other questions before we work out some of the implications? I do. Yes. So um, a lot of the singles, <laughs> I'm married. Okay. <laughs> but I, I, I talked to, they said that they feel obligated to become an independent individual mm-hmm. before they be, they're married, and that's why they kind of delay their, their marriage, but mm-hmm. then in the midst of it, they date. 
Mm. And then there's temptation of having a sexual relationship mm. or intercourse. So what's your view on that? Becoming an individual, independent, independent individual before marriage. What do I think about becoming independent before marriage? Yeah. I mean, um, I think because for me, like it kind of like buys into like a temptation of mm-hmm. being saying because my after I, I after I got married, I have this idea that, you know, if you even if you're like in early 20s, if you think you really love this person and I think you should just get married. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. I've talked about it actually at length in other yeah. venues. Uh-huh. But yeah, I agree with you, which is that a lot of times people think that they're only ready, that marriage is some sort of capstone after you've gone to grad school, after your life is established, when you're on financial solid ground or something like that. Uh-huh. And therefore, a lot of times they want to wait until the late 20s or early mm-hmm. 30s before until they establish their life. I think that's a little bit of a naive view because um, because it assumes that marriage is sort of like the, the end goal after like this long journey of life. Mm-hmm. But it's better to think of marriage as the journey itself. And so if you found your marriage partner, you should just get married and link arms and say, you're not financially secure, I'm not financially secure, but it's okay. Because if you're saying, I want to wait till I'm financially secure, I want to wait till you're financially secure, what you're saying is that we can't get married until we're both secure. What's, what's going to happen when one person falls apart in the middle of marriage? I think it's much, much better to say, let's get married now, come what may. And, and that means the center is marriage, and your career and finances, everything else revolves around marriage, versus your career and finances being the center, and then marriage sort of orbiting around that. Marriage is the pillar, marriage is the center, and then everything else works out. Let me speak uh, to the fact that a lot of dating couples have premarital sex, right? I think that that desire is really natural. Really natural because you are growing close to that person, right? You feel um, intimacy and you want to experience closeness. And so you do experience some degree of emotional oneness. Not completely, because you're still on guard to some degree. You're still sort of auditioning. You're still presenting your best self. But you're experiencing, you're, you're, share, you're sharing with that person, you know, emotional, um, your, your interior emotional life in a way that you don't share with anybody else. And to some degree, you know, like the vagaries of life, if your boyfriend and girlfriend gets into a car accident, you're going to be there for them, right? You're going to sit in the hospital with them, and you're going to share some financial oneness, right? Like, if one person is like the poor couple, the other person will usually, you know, do the, all the treating out. But, and so you want to experience all of these onenesses, right? But the Bible says that bodily oneness is so deep, it's so profound, that you really ought not to do it unless you're willing to commit all the way into doing all of it all at once, right? Under a legal promise. Um, so I think in that sense, dating for a long, long, long time is not really healthy. Unless you're really trying to figure something out that has some um, key deciding factor in terms of your marriage, right? But if you pretty much know, this is my view, you should go ahead and get married. All right. Any other questions? All right. So let's let's dive into these fun issues. All right. Number two. So let's talk about cohabitation. Have you guys heard of this term cohabitation? Of course. Okay. So the biblical word for it is, what's the biblical word for cohabitation or premarital sex? Adultery. No. (laughs) Adultery can only happen if you're in marriage. Okay. So this is is before (laughs) marriage. You've probably seen this word a a dozen times and you're just wondering, what is that? It's the word fornication, right? Okay. So we're talking about fornication, fornicators, right? So let's read this. This is, and almost all the passages I've selected from the New York Times, and this is basically to say, this is not some narrow, um, irrational, unreasonable Christian view, but this really resonates with social science, this resonates with the research that's out there and, and very thoughtful voices that are saying the same thing. All right. Um, can I have Derek just read the whole passage? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll break it up. Okay. No, I, I can read the whole passage. <laughs> in, in a nationwide survey conducted in 2001 by the National Marriage Project, then at Rutgers and now at the University of Virginia, nearly half of 20-somethings agreed with the statement 
you would only marry someone if he or she agreed to live together with you first, so that you could find out whether you really get along. About two-thirds said they believed that moving in together before marriage was a good way to avoid divorce. But that belief is contradicted by experience. Couples who cohabit before marriage, and especially before an engagement or an otherwise clear commitment, tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. Let me just pause right there, because I don't think people believe this. This is not the Bible saying it. This is social science, hard scientific research saying, and I quote, couples who cohabitate, couples who live together before they get married and experience all the benefits of marriage without the legal promise, okay, are less satisfied with their marriage, more likely to divorce than couples who don't do it. That's that's not the Bible only. That's science saying that. All right, keep going. These negative outcomes are called the cohabitation effect. Cohabitation happens through what researchers call sliding, not deciding. Moving from dating to sleeping over to sleeping over a lot to cohabitation can be a gradual slope, one not marked by rings or ceremonies or sometimes even a conversation. Couples bypass talking about why they want to live together and what it will mean. When researchers ask cohabitators these questions, partners often have different, unspoken, even unconscious agendas. Women are more likely to view cohabitation as a step towards marriage, while men are more likely to see it as a way to test a relationship or postpone commitment. And this gender asymmetry is associated with negative interactions and lower levels of commitment, even after the relationship progresses to marriage. One thing men men and women do agree on, however, is that their standards for a live-in partner are lower than they are for a spouse. Sliding into cohabitation wouldn't be a problem if sliding out were as easy, but it isn't. Too often, young adults enter into what they imagine will be low-cost, low-risk living situations only to find themselves unable to get out months, even years later. It's like signing up for a credit card with 0% interest. At the end of 12 months, when the interest goes up to 23%, you feel stuck because your balance is too high to pay off. In fact, cohabitation can be exactly like that. In behavioral economics, it's called consumer loss. All right. So let's talk about that for a little bit, right? Um, what are the problems with with living with your boyfriend and girlfriend? Because you don't have this, because you don't have an explicit promise that makes marriage safe, the relationship is very unstable. You know why? Because you're still auditioning. You're still trying out. You're still... Um, um, trying to you're trying you're evaluating your your partner and therefore both partners are sort of on their best behavior and both partners are a little bit tense and therefore when they do this when they have bodily union it's not the resting it's not the place of absolute peace and comfort that it should be in marriage what is it it's marketing it's a sales pitch Right? You're selling, hey, I'm an exciting partner. Don't you want to be with me? You're constantly making the sales pitch. And therefore, you've abused what sex is supposed to be, which is sex is not supposed to be a sales pitch. Sex is supposed to be uniting with your married partner, your lifelong partner. Sex is supposed to be just this incredibly relaxed and peaceful moment. You know, like, like um, uh, none of us like to, like, uh, maybe the worst nightmare for a lot of us is to be exposed naked in front of everyone, because then you can see all your flaws, your flabbiness, right? Your out-of-shape body. And so we cover up, right? So we look good. But with your married partner, you can be naked. You can be naked all across the board. You can be naked emotionally. You can be naked in in all your problems. And that's the only safe place to have sex. The, The second problem is because there's no explicit agreement. Again, no legal promise. There are different expectations. A lot of times couples move in together They've never had a, a conversation, what does this mean? Even if they have a conversation, what does this mean? There's still different understanding because there is, again, no legal promise. And therefore, um, different expectations um, lead to profound, profoundly unfair situations where people, one party, usually the girl, gets really bitter and angry. And that carries over into marriage. The bitterness and the anger never completely lets, let, it, it disappears, right? So this is the problem with cohabitation. Any thoughts or comments on this before we go on to the next point? This is like, I feel like groundbreaking. I feel like what we're talking about right now, like 99% of America is like, you guys are crazy. <laughs> right? So 
this is really revolutionary, I think. I think it's so beautiful and true. Mm. Any any comments or thoughts? Alright, so let's move on. More fun stuff. Let's talk about adultery. I remember reading this column um, a couple of years back, and when I read it, I would, I would, I was just like riveted. It was just like most intense, crazy column. I suggest you look it up online and read the whole thing. Um, Ezra, can I have you read, read it? Yeah. Uh... So, so, so let me just set up the situation. The columnist is a woman, and she's talking about how um, she had an affair um, against her husband with another man. Uh, okay. Uh, the great sex, by the way, is, is a given. When you have an affair, you already know you'll have passionate sex. The urgency, the newness, and illicit nature of the affair practically guarantee that. What you don't know, or perhaps what you don't allow yourself to think about, is that your life will become an unbearable mix of yearning and regret because of it. It will become difficult, if not impossible, to be in any one place with contentment. This is no way for an adult to live. When you're with a lover, your lover, uh, you'll be working on your alibi and feeling loathsome. When you're with your spouse, you'll be dying to return to your love nest. When you're at home, everything in your life will look just a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in the refrigerator, your children, your dog. Because you would detach yourself from your normal point of reference. And it now belongs to rea- reality you've abandoned. You'll be pulled between two poles, one of obligation and responsibility. The other of pleasure and escape. And the stress of these opposing forces will threaten to split you in two. In the end, your marriage may not need to be trashed, though mine was. The affair is metastasized in a relationship from the inside out. By the time all was said and done, there was little left to say. Our our marriage had become like a leaf eaten away by caterpillars, where the whatever and midrib (laughs) remain with some ghostly connective tracery in between. Not enough to hold even a drop of rain. I look at my parents and how much simpler their lives are at the age of 75, mostly because they haven't married the landscape with grand-scale deceit. They have this marriage of 50-some years behind them, and it's a monument to success. A few weeks or months of illicit passion couldn't hold a candle to it. Yeah, I I, I think what really I found so um, arresting is, if you look in the first paragraph, he says... When, you, when she says, when you're at home, everything in your life will look a little bit out of register. The furniture, the food in your refrigerator, your children, your dog. Because you've detached yourself from your normal point of reference, and it now belongs to a reality you've abandoned, right? So what is she talking about? She's saying that, what is marriage? Marriage is this comprehensive union, right? It's this life that you live together. And when you violate that, and you experience oneness with somebody else right, violating this legal promise, then your life becomes completely disjointed and and it's like you live in two different realities. One reality is you're with your spouse and you have this life that you live together, but it's false. It's totally fake, right? But the, uh, nobody else knows about it, only you. And then you're with your lover, but the whole time you're so stressed out because you're trying to maintain the, the, the appearance that you're still in this comprehensive union with your spouse, right? And that experience is so destabilizing, so um, painful, that she says, even though, and I love it, she says, the sex is great, right? She, it's, it's, it's so passionate and illicit, but yet it just completely destroys her. And I love the description. Um, she talks about this leaf, right, where it's eaten up by the caterpillars, and there's just like this fossilized, I mean, skeletal remains left. That's her marriage, that's her life. Um, Any questions or comments on just the devastation that adultery causes? Right? This is, again, not just the Bible saying it'll devastate your life. This is the New York Times acknowledging it. Any comments or thoughts? Alright, let's go on. Now let's talk about pornography. Um... So, who can I have? Uh, Tracy, can I have you read? This is, again, from the New York Times. So, let me let me just briefly talk about pornography. Um, so, the Bible says you should not commit adultery. And what does that mean? Does that mean if you're in bed with a strange woman, you're committing the sin? Jesus expands the law because he says, if you look lustfully at another woman who is not your wife, you have committed adultery. So, he expands it not only to what you do with your body, but what you do with your heart. 
with what you do with your intent, what, what you do with your eyes. And therefore, pornography is definitely included. So let's, let's Trace, can you read that? Yeah. Clear patterns emerge from more than 30 years of academic research and organizing informed by a feminist critique of pornography. In heterosexual couples, men who habitually use pornography sometimes withdraw from intimacy with female partners and sometimes make demands on female partners for sexual acts that are uncomfortable, painful, or degrading to the woman. Women in heterosexual <coughs> relationships report that these behaviors can destroy relationships and men sometimes report that they are aware of the damage but cannot break the habit. Yeah, you know what that means? Addiction, mm -hmm. right? Keep going. Anyone who doubts these trends should talk to marriage therapists and divorce lawyers. Anecdotal, sorry, anecdotal. anecdotal evidence suggests it's a harsh business for women. The industry portrays high-profile performers with glamorous lives, but producers and directors we've interviewed said candidly that the industry chews up and spits out women. Yeah, so I have three comments on this. Um, number one, if we understand that um, sex is a unifying act in marriage, then pornography is perhaps the most broken and degraded expression of sex there is. Because you're not uniting with another person. At least, you're, at least with a prostitute, there's another human being. But with pornography, it's completely virtual. There is nobody else. And therefore, pornographic sex is completely self-directed inward. It's an absolutely selfish act. Compared to um, the Christian view of sex, which is Christian view of sex is serving and giving to the other, thinking about the other person, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's not harmless. Um, I think a lot of times people tell themselves, it's okay, I'm not hurting anybody, right? And that's just simply not true. Um, engaging in pornography absolutely hurts you um, for several reasons. Number one, pornographic sex is radically different than real sex. Um, I remember, just to share my own story, I remember when I got married, right? And, and I was like, I had, this, I had these expectations based on TV and movie that sex was going to be just like this passionate, just embrace you know, and like music plays, and like it's like this great, wonderful experience. And what I discovered, <laughs> what I discovered is that sex is totally not like what you see in the movies. It's totally like um, you're thinking about the other person. You you have to care about what you know they're thinking, what they're feeling, in a way that I totally was not prepared for. Right, and and I think this is why a lot of times. Um, the research shows that, in fact, people not only develop an addiction to pornography, but they prefer pornography to real sex. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, married men would rather have pornographic sex than sex with their wives. And I completely understand, because pornographic sex is totally frictionless. You don't have to think about the other person. You don't have to say, you know, how are you feeling, dear? Um, um, it's complete, the pornographic image is completely responsive in thinking about you. Whereas in real sex, you have to think about and care about the other person, right? And so, um, so, so it's not harmless in the sense that it actually diminishes your desire and preference for the real thing. That's so tragic, right? So that every time you engage in pornography, you're diminishing and you're destroying this comprehensive union you have with your wife, right? Because... You desire this less. And if you desire this less, this is sort of like a canary in the, in, the, in the mind, right? It's all interconnected. And so you're diminishing intimacy all across the board. The other thing is that pornographic sex, uh, men who, who engage in porn tend to graduate to other things. And the reason why is because it starts to train your appetites, right? A lot of times what you see in porn is not at all what real sex is like, and therefore... Um, studies have shown that a lot of times porn is like, it's kind of like marijuana, it's the gateway drug, right? You, you move on to other things like prostitution and, and so forth. And so I think a lot of times the reason why it's difficult for people um, to abstain from pornography is you, you tell yourself this lie, I'm not doing any harm, it's not hurting anybody, it absolutely harms you. It absolutely hurts you. This is the scientific research. This is 
you know, this, these are studies, right? It diminishes your, your enjoyment of the real thing. It diminishes your marriage. If you're not married, it's going to diminish your enjoyment of your future wife. If you are married, it's going to diminish your, your love for your, 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 your wife in your marriage. And then the third thing, and this has really come into relief of late, is that it harms women, right? So there's a whole thing about um, anecdotal evidence about it's a harsh business for women. A lot of times... Um, and I don't want to just say guys, because we know that this is uh, a problem for women as well, but on a lesser scale. But a lot of times guys say, what's the harm, right? If I just go on the internet or if I buy a magazine or if I buy a movie, I don't see how it's hurting anybody. But the whole sex industry is interconnected. It's all related. So the, 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 the child prostitutes in Thailand, it's all part of this giant sex industry, of which pornography is a big part of. And when you support the porn industry, when you, um, when you uh, 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 what is it, uh, support that segment of the sex industry, you're supporting the whole thing. And, you're, and therefore, you're increasing the exploitation, you're participating in the oppression of women because this industry kills women, right? This industry is, is, is exploitive of women. And as Christians, we should weep, right? This is a social justice issue. How can we support, how can we participate in an industry in which children are being kidnapped in Thailand to service, uh, to service men in, 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 Singapore, in, uh, in the Saigon and so forth, right? And so, um, and so it, it has a, a, a social justice issue. Any thoughts or comments on this issue of pornography? So those are my three points. It's, it's, uh, it's perhaps the most degraded form of sex. It hurts marriage. It hurts yourself. And it's an injustice, injustice to women. Any thoughts or comments? I think it's, it's funny how like, sometimes you see some high profile, uh, whether it's a religious leader or whatever, all of a sudden they're in some sexual scandal. Mm-hmm. Like, so so I'm, I'm always thinking, like, oh, it, it doesn't just happen like overnight. And sure. you're going to have an affair. Sure. It happens with like, pornography. And sure. Kind of a build up, like you were saying. Like, it's, uh, yeah. It's just it is a gateway drug, right? Nobody, very few men <coughs> go immediately to a prostitute. Yeah. It starts at something much lower. So what you're doing is like if if, if prostitution is if the barrier to, to visiting a prostitute is this high, um, and then visiting like um, a strip bar is this high, then here's pornography. And so once you cross this barrier, and if you keep crossing it, it becomes easier to cross this barrier. It becomes easier to cross this barrier, and it becomes easier to cross the next 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 barrier. And then you've destroyed your life. All right, let's talk about homosexuality. See, this is the fun class. You guys all came. We're talking about pornography. We're talking about homosexuality. Um, all right. All right, so I wanted to make a few comments on this issue of homosexuality because it is related to the issue of marriage. It is related to sex. Um, let me make a few preliminary comments. Number one, everybody wants to know, okay, what does this mean for gay marriage, the issue of gay marriage? And so let me just, let me just sketch this out because this is a whole, this is a much bigger issue. Um, a lot of times, people are, this is again one of the major stumbling blocks that people have against Christianity, right? Which is, oh, Christians are against gay marriage. And let me disconnect those two things, because that's not true. Um, it really depends on your political perspective, right? So if you can think of politics as a spectrum, right? So here's libertarians. And there isn't really like um, a non-derogatory term for non Libertarians. Um, so let me just say robust government. <laughs> okay? So here, if you're a libertarian, you believe that government shouldn't be involved generally in almost everything. And if you believe in robust government, you believe that government should be involved and can solve a lot of social problems and social ills. If you're a Christian libertarian... You can believe in the immorality of homosexuality, but be opposed to gay marriage. Because you basically say, well, it shouldn't be the government deciding or legislating these issues, right? Even if you believe in a more robust government, right? This is only, you know, libertarians are maybe 10% of the population. It's, it's kind of growing now because it's in vogue. But if you, if you, even if you believe in a more aggressive form of government, it's really a question of what exactly should the government get involved with? Should the government outlaw prostitution? Some people say yes. Some people say no. Should the government outlaw adultery? 
Should the government make it extremely hard to get a divorce? Should the government outlaw pornography? Right? So these are all questions of which, in terms of sexual, in terms of Christian sexual ethics, um, all, almost every Christian, unless you really believe in a very, very robust government, we don't believe that necessarily that it 100% has to translate. Right? We don't live in a theocracy. And so I think for a lot of times people are very wary of the Christian, of Christianity because they think it automatically leads to you're opposed to gay marriage. And opposition to gay marriage is looked on as you're basically against gay rights or you're, you're, you're against gay people and you want to deny them their rights. That's not necessarily true. There's a spectrum of views, all right? So does that make sense? So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that um, Christianity has come under severe attack on its view of homosexuality. And let me just say that I think, in large part, we deserve it. Because we had decades and decades to show compassion and friendship to gay people, and we didn't. I remember back when I was in high school, this was, I went to high school from, um, from uh, 91 to 95, right? And I remember there was a gay student in one of my classes, and he was picked on mercilessly, right? He was, like, it was, it was before the era when it was, like, suddenly much more open and inclusive, and so this kid really got it. I mean, this kid was so, was viciously mocked. And when I think about it, I didn't necessarily participate, but I didn't do anything, right? I just, I just like, let it happen. And I wish I could go back. And I wish, as a Christian, I could, I could befriend him. I could wrap my arm around him and say, you know, let me be your friend. And let me hang out with you, you know? The Christian club in my high school did nothing. So I think that in many ways, we as Christians are getting what we deserve in the sense that people are saying, you know, Christians are, you know, are hateful towards gays. And I think in large part, we, we should have been at the forefront of loving our gay brothers and sisters, but we didn't. So let me just say that. I don't know if you guys remember the whole case with, with Matthew Shepard. This was, I think, when I was in college. Matthew Shepard was a gay college student. And when his roommate found out that he was gay, he was murdered. They kidnapped him, they tortured him, and then they murdered him. And so I think that for us as Christians, we should extend incredible compassion to gay people because um, they are the victims of hate crimes, right? Um, a lot of times in high school the, or junior high, the worst thing is to be different. The worst thing possible is to like um, 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 act in a weird way. And that's what they have to deal with. And so I think uh, uh, they deserve an enormous amount of compassion. Um, and then the third thing I want to say on this issue is that uh, I think to some degree this ish whole issue has been blown up way out of proportion. Because the Bible's view on, on sex, um, the Bible's comprehensive view on sex, right? If, if we talk about all the various ways of all the various manifestations of, of sexual morality, pornea, homosexuality would absolutely be in that category. But how much does the Bible focus on the pornea of homosexuality? A count has been done. Maybe seven passages in the Bible. How many times is adultery talked about? How many times is fornication talked about, right? How many times is, you know, what would be the equivalent of pornography, which is, you know, a lustful looks at women, how much is that talked about? Way, way more. So we should be focusing, I mean, to some degree, you know, we shouldn't make this like the, the, the biggest sin on earth. You know what I mean? But we shouldn't make this like the forefront of our critique of our culture. Why don't we critique beauty magazines that objectify women? You know, why don't we do something about prostitution? Why don't we do something about sex trafficking? That should be at the forefront of our activism and our, our interest. And in terms of, of pornea, that's not even, again, the whole thrust of biblical ethics the Bible talks about greed way more. The Bible talks about the problem of unforgiveness. The Bible talks about racial reconciliation. And so it needs to be put into perspective, right? So that's the third thing I want to say. And then the final thing I want to say is, okay, why does the Bible um, um, have a negative moral evaluation of homosexuality? I think uh, Tim Keller put it really well. So let me, let's, let's read it. Um, Amber, can I ask you to read it? Sure. 
One main purpose of sex and marriage is the reunion of the complementary but separate genders. Men and women each have distinct glories and we need one another. Marriage is the primary, though not only, place where those glories are blended and we are profoundly enriched. I'm not, oh, I'm sorry. Let me. I just noticed the time. So let me just summarize. Sure. So that's the first argument he makes, right? Which is that why is homosexuality um, negatively evaluated? Because um, homosexuality is same-same. And, um, and the purpose of sex ultimately is to image and glorify God and to image the gospel. And what you have in the gospel is you have unity and diversity. Right, and you have uh, different persons in the Holy Spirit. I mean, different persons in God coming together. You have uh, Jesus Christ and the Church, two different things coming together. And so you have man and women who are very different from each other coming together. That is a picture and image of God. When you have man, man, or woman, woman, it doesn't. It's not imaging correctly, right? So that's that's the first problem. The second thing is, um, um, let me see. Let me, let me go down to the last paragraph, okay? Because um, I thought what he says here is really good. Because our culture teaches us that the meaning of life is found primarily in sexual fulfillment and satisfaction. I think that's really true. I think a lot of times this whole discourse on homosexuality, people say, how can you ask people to deny their deepest sexual feelings and orientations and desires? Right? You're, you're asking them to suppress a core part of who they are. And what the Bible would say is, you're... The core of who you are is not your sexuality. The core of who you are is your identity in Christ. And therefore, right, within that view of life, um, I'm sorry, uh, let me just keep reading, right? So, so Keller's echoing what the uh, culture says. Within that view of life, the biblical prohibitions on homosexuality may seem harsh and cruel. Indeed, God's will in Scripture often seems to frustrate many of our deepest longings, not just our sexual ones. But if we are faithful to His word, we find that each divine demand is really a summons into a transformative process in which we discover deeper levels of joy, peace, and fulfillment in God and in Christian love than we would otherwise have known. And so what the Bible constantly calls on Christians to do is deny yourself. You have these desires, you have these ambitions, you have these um, um, wishes, and a lot of time they're broken. Not just for homosexual, homosexuals, but for all of us. Heterosexuals are broken too. Right? The Bible doesn't say, I want you to be heterosexual people. The Bible says, I want you to be holy. Right? So there's broken homosexuality, there's broken heterosexuality, and therefore all of us have to suppress our desires. If I want to have sex with another woman who's not Christina, do I say, do I say to God, your prohibitions seem harsh and cruel. Why are you, den- how can I deny my emotions and feelings? I must go to this woman. No. The Bible says, if you deny yourself, you'll find deeper happiness and joy and fulfillment in obeying God and not obeying your desires. But, with that said, let me just say that as Christians, we should express a lot of compassion for our gay brothers and sisters because I have a desire for sex, but I can fulfill it and experience the richness of it by getting married. For Christians, we tell our gay brothers and sisters, you don't have that option. Your option is chastity. Your option is abstinence, lifelong abstinence. And so that's a much, much harder thing to ask them to do. And therefore, I think like the whole discourse has to be really one of a lot of compassion, a lot of patience, because we're asking them to do something much, much greater than we're asking heterosexual Christians. Right? Three minutes to ask questions on this issue on homosexuality. So for the idea of homosexuality, we're not... Like, so we're called to love them, right? But then how do you... Like, we're not, so we're not called to change them, essentially, then? Because I mean, like... Yeah, there's something called reparative therapy. Um, like the Exodus International, that's an organ- Christian organ- pseudo-Christian organization that basically tried to convert homosexuals into heterosexuals and the way they would do it is they would show them like pornographic videos to try to get them to lust for women and things like that and that's completely a flawed view of what holiness is right um um i mean like if, if a man was having struggle with adultery you would not just like you know say all right the solution is you know you just need to see your wife in lingerie more often right um the solution is to love god so much that your sexual desires 
are less real and less deep than the reality of God. And we live in such a broken world that the reality is all of our sexual desires are broken to one degree or another. Nobody has a whole sexuality. Everyone is a broken sexual person. And so the Bible is calling us to holiness and to wholeness, which is a lot of times to deny ourselves and to confine ourselves to sex within the beautiful way that God intended it, which is which is marriage. Let me define that. Does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. I don't know if that did. I just went off on a whole other section. Oh, yeah, so we're not, trying, we're not asking them to, yeah. to be heterosexuals. No. Just love just what? We just love them. We, well, yeah, we love them, and we're, we're calling on them yeah. to live a holy life. Any question? I think your acknowledgement of how difficult what we're asking our gay brothers and sisters to do is really spot on. Um, given one of my best friends in Pennsylvania and housemates uh, con- started to confide to us the second year that he, he was homosexual. Yeah. And just kind of struggling through that and having those conversations was yeah. really, really tough. Yeah, it's a very tough thing. Right. I think nobody wants to be gay. Nobody wants to, like, I want to be different from everybody right. else. You know, I want to, I want to, because even if you're fully out and you're comfortable with being gay, you still have enormous difficulties. Even if you do get married, you can never have children with your spouse. Right. Right? Yeah. I have children with Christina. That's, that's such a beautiful thing. And that's denied to gay people. So I think it's a really, it's a really difficult thing. And I think a lot of people within the church suppress it and don't let, uh, uh, fe- don't feel like it's a safe place for them to share that, like, hey, these are the feelings that I have and like the innate desires that I have. Yes. Um, like within the church body, I think yes, there are a I lot agree. more homosexuals than we would probably guess mm-hmm. or like think at first. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the church has not been a safe place to right. share that you have, that you're homosexual, that you're struggling with these things. Um, I don't know how to change it, but um, I think shame on us as Christians that we don't welcome all sinners. Right. Only certain sins are okay. Mm-hmm. I struggle with um, with envy. Oh, you know, welcome, brother. But but if I struggle with homosexuality, then ooh, you know. You can't be my friend anymore. Um, yeah, I think there's... So, I really hope, and I look forward to the day, when IGC can have gay brothers and sisters in our church, and we can surround them with love and compassion. Let's see if that happens. All right, let me close in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, um, we didn't get to the gospel, but we know the gospel is this, that um, sex is ultimately a picture of marriage, and that you are the bridegroom, we are... Um, the bride, but we have been unfaithful. And so all of us are sinners. All of us are sexual sinners. But you loved us. You bought us back. You forgave us. You reconciled reconciled with us. And I pray that that profound experience of grace and love would transform us and make us embrace prostitutes, um, pornographers, um, gay people, Um, sexually broken people, I pray that our church can be a safe place for them, a place of love, a place of community. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.